Welcome back to the Sword and the Spirit. We take a look at the issues of the day, both in and out of the church, via teaching and interviews. My goal here is to stimulate thoughts and conversations that will lead to positive growth and action on the part of the listener. My prayer is that he that has an ear to hear will hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. Welcome back to another episode of The Sword and the Spirit. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about getting the message right. This is all part of the Mars Hill Project. You know, if we're going to reach out to the lost and even in this uh, culture that we're in, and let me, let me say this. This idea of culture war and trying to restore America to whatever so-called golden age it had is not going to happen. And the problem with the church is that we think that if we lose our grip on the culture, somehow uh, the gospel won't be spread. But Jesus said the gates of hell cannot prevail. So I don't worry about that. Uh, The sinner is going to do what the sinner does. They're going to create laws that allow them to sin. So I wouldn't stress myself over that. that. That's what they do. What we need to do as believers is to be about our Father's business, most importantly, than anything else. And instead of focusing on that, let's focus on what we should be doing in terms of reaching out with the gospel. The early church came into a world of arrogant, militant paganism. Outside of Israel, nobody knew anything about God, David, covenants. They didn't know a thing. There was a complete blank slate. And into that, the, the apostle Paul and others had to go into that world to bring the gospel. Missionaries do it all the time, go into countries where there is no gospel and establish churches. So, yes, uh, just because we see America becoming more and more, at least what we say, uh, secular of society and moving away from some of the Judeo-Christian values that it had inherently in it is not cause for alarm or panic. God is on the throne. God saw this day coming. It's happening and it is going to happen. Uh, no amount of legislation or, or battling with people is going to be, uh, is really counterproductive, if you ask me. It's just outright counterproductive. Now, along with that, that's where we are right now. And our world is not nearly as bad because people still know about the church, but you know, it's it's just a matter of us getting the message right and, and keeping our focus. And this is what the Mars Hill Project is about, is getting back to the basics, keeping focus, staying on mission. You know, uh, if the job is told to hold this bridge, then we shouldn't be in the next town trying to take it over. The mission was hold the bridge. Then you stay there and you hold it. Don't worry about the next town over. God has another unit to take that town. Uh, but our march north is a world evangelization to preach the gospel, to carry this message and, and globally, and to establish churches in every ethnicity. Every ethnic group needs to have a vibrant New Testament-type church within its borders. And God is so gracious, some of them have more. You know, Brooklyn, the borough of churches. I mean, America is just saturated with churches. Some countries, unfortunately, they have one. So let's get back on message here, saints, and get the message right. The gospel is inherently offensive. That's number one. The gospel is inherently offensive. 
put out of your head trying to make it palatable, palatable to people. And I, again, I understand it, and I'm not saying, I guess churches can do whatever they think is necessary. But let me say this. A lot of churches now remove, have a different name. Like if I'm an Episcopal church, I won't have Episcopal on my labels on my church anymore. I change the name to Good Shepherd Church or something. And that way nobody really knows where a Episcopal church or a mainline denomination, a lot of the mainline churches are doing that because they're losing people to the non-mainline uh, churches. And so we're just stealing sheep. By the way, the so-called church growth thing is just saints moving from one church to another. You're not really growing that many new believers. All we're doing is, is pulling members from one church to another. And the saints are running around looking to be either entertained or something that makes them feel good or, or to have their particular needs met. And I hear that all the time. I left that church because it was not meeting my needs. And we can talk about that as well. But uh, the, the, the primary function of the church is not to meet your needs. It's the it's, it's, number one, you're placed in a church by God. God allegedly, let's, uh, people, let's assume that people are being led of the Holy Spirit. God allegedly places you in, into a church body. Now, if God has directed you to that church body, there's no cutting and running at the first sign of trouble. The early church, when you see in the in the book of Revelations, when Christ talks to the seven churches and he lays out what they're doing wrong, and then he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your candlestick. Uh... Christ then turns and appeals to the individuals in the church and said, listen, if the church doesn't get it right, you stay on the right path, no matter what is going on in your church. He never tells them to leave or to cut and run. He just says, you remain faithful. The Pope is not faithful. If the church is not faithful, you remain faithful. Remember in the first century, if the church went south, there was nowhere to go. You couldn't cut and run. There's no church you could go to. Now, I know in, 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 you know, now in modern times it's easier because I don't like this. So I could run down the street or whatever. I get it. You, uh, you know, who wouldn't want to be in a church that's biblically based and doing what God told it to do? But so many times we leave not because the church is not biblically based, and doing what God told it to do. We just leave the church because we don't like hymns. Uh, they don't sing hymns. Either, either we don't like hymns or they or or, or they, if they don't sing hymns and we leave that church because they're not singing hymns. Is that battle? Or they don't have a good youth group. Good church. In fact, the other church is better, but in terms of, uh, of, of closeness to the, the mission of God, but... They don't have a good youth group, and I don't want to lose, lose my young people. So I'll bring them to this church that has a lot of youth in it. And generally speaking, not always, not always, not always, but generally speaking, when you see a church with a large youth group, it's just a lot of entertainment and trips to Great Adventure or Disney or whatever. And that's pretty much all it comes down to. And I say that from experience. I've, I've been there, done that, and seen it. And they just become a great big entertainment thing. Usually on the lower levels, they're good. Because when the smaller kids, it's easier to, you know, get them into the Bible and stuff like that. But the older kids, as they get teenagers, they're not really that interested. So you got to throw a lot of carrots on the stick to keep them in there. So I get it. I get it. And I'm not saying that I have a better idea as to how to do it. I'm just simply saying this is what happens. And so people join churches for all kinds of various reasons. And as a result of that, uh, we have a very self-centered church body. So as soon as the pastor says something I don't like, or the church does something I don't like, or I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about doing bad things to you or so, some of the abuse that goes on from the pulpit. I'm, not, I'm just talking about they just had a different method, a different way of doing things. 
or they preached on something that, you know, struck a nerve, and now you're mad, and then you just want to get up and leave. Uh, that's not of God. God. God is not telling you to do those types of things. Also, uh, it's very common for people to run from church to church, but, we, but that's not what God wants. God calls you to a church, but you stay there until God releases you. Maybe there is something wrong with it, and you want to get released. And then you, you would at least first go and see God. Then you'll sit down and talk with your pastor and your leadership. And by the way, if the only way to do that, if you're a member of a church, and the only time the pastor sees you is when you have a gripe, and you've got nothing good to say, then you need to take a good, hard look at yourself. It's, probably, it's more than likely it's not them, it's you. But it's kind of hard for a pastor or church elders or leaders to receive anything from you if all you do is complain. All they're going to say is, here they come again. And then they may even start avoiding you. Yes, church leaders will start doing that. They will just start trying to avoid you. Or the, or the deacons will start running interference so you can't get to the pastor. And that's because, you know, you just come in with gripes and you don't have anything constructive to say about the church or what's or what needs to be done. But if you have a legitimate gripe, bring it to the pastor and the elders and try to work that out, get an understanding, and you, and you go back and pray. And if you still feel the same way, like the, so something's not right here, it's not what God wants, then ask God about releasing you from the church. And then if, in fact, God does release you from the church, then you need to go back and... Uh, discuss that with your pastor and give him reason, an, an exit interview uh, as to why you're leaving. And, you know, try to leave as peacefully and amicably as possible. You know? And then when you get to your new church, please don't badmouth the last church you just came from. Not cool. And in fact, the best way to go is to, it would be nice if, if your former pastor could give you a letter of recommendation and say, this is a member in good standing. You know, and the new pastor may ask you why you left. Then just give him the facts, the bare facts, but don't attack anybody. No personal attacks on the pastor or whatever. It might be a doctrinal statement or the way certain things were done or whatever it was that caused you to leave. Hopefully not something where you have to attack the pastor. And I'm not talking about where they, about uh, people abusing their power or authority. That does happen. In that case, you just got to tell the truth. Well, I just felt like I was being abused. You just lay it out there. But um, but if you can't avoid bad-mouthing your former church and former pastor. Okay, so. But the gospel inherently brings persecution. Jesus said, if the world hated me, what do you think? They're going to hate you also. Assuming you're following him. Now, if you're not following him, then they're not, they, they may not hate you. In fact, if everybody's lovey-dovey on you, I would be a little suspicious. And that doesn't mean go out and be rude or obnoxious and say, see, they hate me. They're just hating you because you're rude and obnoxious. That doesn't count. It has to be because of your, 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 the type of life that you're living in Christ. And that means you can't be self-righteous around people or feel you're better than they are. You can't give them those types of vibes. Now, they may misunderstand certain things you do and say, oh, you think you're better, but you never said you thought you were better. You just simply was saying, you know, this is how I'm living my life. Okay. So the Bible says to preach the word in season and out of season. So we preach the word, whether it's popular or whether it's not popular. But a lot of churches now and some people uh, are watering down the gospel. They have what they call seeker-friendly services. And to try to tone it down a bit. Don't be as uh, don't be so much on the salvation side, you know. Just talk about general things, things in general, like sort of like a TED talk, motivational speaking. And I'm not against motivational speaking, but it just doesn't belong in the pulpit, sun, particularly Sunday morning. Shouldn't be in the pulpit. If you want to have TED talks, then have a have a special session in the church for TED talks and motivational speaking. But if you're going to have Bible study, then the Bible should be open and we're studying the Bible. If you're going to have Sunday morning service, 
Then you open the Bible and you preach out of the Word of God. That's it. I don't want a motivational speech. I don't want 10 ways to be successful. I have to run a successful business. I want the gospel. So, but we preach it when it's popular and when it's not popular. Right now, preaching is not popular. Preaching on hell, not popular. Preaching on salvation in Christ only, not popular. In fact, I don't think any, I don't think there was ever a period when it was popular. You know, these are the hard sayings. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and come follow me. That's hard sayings. But that's what it says. And as preachers, as teachers, as Christians, we, you say it says what it says. We're not going to alter it for, any, for anyone or anybody or any reason. Don't alter it. So the gospel inherently is offensive. And there will always be, whenever, always remember, anytime you're preaching the true gospel, the real deal, there will be rejection and persecution. Persecution from without, from atheists, other, other religions, people who have various lifestyles that don't align with scripture. You're going to be accused of all kinds of things. But stand fast. Preach the word. That's our, that's our primary responsibility. The gospel is inherently offensive. Now, one of the other reasons why we have difficulty preaching the gospel is found in Scripture. Let me read this to you. In Romans 2.24... Romans 2, get my glasses, 24. It says this, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Sometimes, as saints, we fail. We fail. Now, there's grace. But sometimes there's something that we may say or do that causes people to blaspheme God. Let me give a good example of this in the area of divine healing. And it's not intentional, but it's just a misunderstanding of what the Bible actually teaches. There are those who believe that to even confess that you have a cold or that you're sick is a lack of faith. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not true, isn't it? If you're if you go to the doctor and, you, and the doctor says so do you have what you know doctor asks you well so what's wrong do you have any issues they go for the checkup say all right anything any pain any lump anything you want to talk about discuss or ask me about now this time now you got severe back pain or you got a lump in your in your chest or you you're you're having blurred vision you're having recurring headaches migraines but you don't want to confess it so you tell the doctor. I don't, I'm good. So what's the doctor going to do? If you tell the doctor everything's fine, guess what he's going to do? Whatever ailment you had that you came there with, you're going home with it because he's just going to send you home. Because what else can he do, right? You just told him, I'm okay, I'm good. So he's going to send you home. And he may send you home to get us, and you may go home and end up with a stroke or whatever because your blood pressure was too high and, or whatever, and you didn't uh, talk to the doctor about it when he could have prescribed something that could have potentially have saved your life. That's what I mean by extremes. Or you got some people who uh, believe that there's a lack of faith to take medication. I ain't taking no medication. I ain't getting no therapy. And I have seen case after case. I've seen this with my own two eyes. I've lived it. I've seen it. So many believers. I've seen Christians go blind. I I saw some of my friends die. We lowered them into the ground. Because they would not take their medication because they thought it falsely that it was a lack of faith. And then the world looks at that and says, see, God did not heal them. God did not deliver them. And it gives them an opportunity to blaspheme God. And, and, and the preacher who preached that to you, who told that to you, is not held accountable or liable for it. 
I've seen situations where preachers of evangelists came into this one church, told the told the, the 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 parents not to give their kid insulin because God had healed him. The evangelist took the money and ran, and he got away scot free, and he got he got rich off of duping these people. The parents did not give the child the medication. The child died because he didn't get his insulin. And the parents were charged with criminal negligence and went to jail. And God was blasphemed by the sinners. They could look at it and say, see, these Christians are stupid. Why do they believe in this crap? That's what I mean by God's name being blasphemed by some of the stupid, insipid things that we do and teach and believe. Let's see the words of scripture right here for a second. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Did you hear that? Because of them... The way of truth will be blasphemed. Think about that, saints, for a minute. Think about that. The way of truth will be blasphemed. What you saw on September 11th, that's right, I'm saying it. What you saw on September, sorry, not 11th, what you saw on January 6th, I'm thinking of September 11th attacks. What you, that, that, what you saw it happening at the Capitol on January 6th, regardless of what you believe or what side of the political spectrum you're on, I saw the cross, people taking the cross of Christ and beating people with it, assaulting people with it. Law enforcement officers, which the Bible tells you you're supposed to respect. But okay. I saw people waving Christian flags and saying Christian prayers. After violently attacking the Capitol, building two gallows to hang Pelosi and the vice president, and attempting to use uh, force to impose their will on the rest of the nation, regardless of whatever side you're on, whether you're on the Republican or Democratic side, doesn't matter. That, when the sinner sees those types of things and said, These are Christians? This is a loving God, and the people up here behaving like this, complete turn off. If I was a non-Christian, there's no way you'd get me near a church anymore. So the very people you're trying to reach, you're repelling. Now, like I said, the gospel is inherently offensive, but don't add to the offense. And because of false doctrine, false teachers have multiplied throughout the body of Christ, this thing is unbelievably out of control. And, and somewhat frightening. I never thought I'd live to see it in my lifetime. I always thought when the Bible talks about the great apostasy or the great falling away of the church, I always thought it would be, you know, maybe the end of my life. I'm about to die anyway. It wouldn't matter. But geez, Louise, that's right. You heard me say that. <laughs> this is unbelievable. The amount of error and insanity in the church. The, uh, is unbelievable. And so when we say we represent Christ, I remember years ago, I, mean, I should have seen it coming because years ago, this was back in the early 80s, I went, to, I was attending what was supposed to be a rally of Christians against, uh, at, a, at an abortion clinic. And I remember going there and I was horrified, shocked, and appalled. There was a 16-year-old girl, at least in Samaya, she might have been about 16, and pregnant, and the names they called her going into that abortion clinic was unbelievable. And I said, now, instead of ministering to this young lady, instead of bringing reconciliation and redemption to her, we're calling her names. Well, at least they were, I wasn't. And, 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 you know, Things that you shouldn't call a female. 
it, it was it was a nightmare. And I at that point I decided I, I can't get involved in this. Turn me right off. I said I'm not getting involved in this because this does not represent Christ or the love of God. I've seen this happen also with the gay community. Uh, some of the uh, signs God hates you know person if they're gay. You know, uh, he likes the, he loves the adulterer. He loves everybody else, but he just doesn't like you if you're gay. And I was like, wow, this is deep. Okay, so, and then you wonder why people don't want to come to Christ and how, why we, people are turned off to the gospel. Um, you say, are you saying, Brother Ryan, you shouldn't tell people that they're going to hell? Well, yeah, but then don't single out one particular lifestyle. The adulterer, the liar, the thief, the Bible says in Revelation 21, 8, and including the liar. Let's talk about the liars. Let's not just ride one horse here. And all liars shall have their part in a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. So it's not just one group. It's just in, just sin, period. And by the way, the Bible says in John, the first chapter, it says, now this is the condemnation. Is that light or truth has come into the world and men have chosen darkness rather than light. The sin is only a symptom of the rejection of Christ. It's the rejection of Christ which leads to the sin, obviously. But it's the rejection of Christ is why people end up in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. The liar, the cheat, etc., etc., that long list he gives in 21.8 of Revelation. It's a reason, that's, the, that's the sin, that's the lifestyle that occurred once, the, once there was a deep rejection of Christ. That's where that led to, or not accepting of him. They were already there doing it, Christ was offered to them, to them, and they decided not to do it. And so they just kept on doing it because we're born in sin, etc. The proclivity for sin. And we just kept on doing it when God offered us a way out. That's why God judges people. because Not because of the sin per se, because the whole world is born with proclivity to sin. And we all sin. All have sinned. It comes short of God's glory. But the issue now is that God in Christ has given us a way out, and people just choose not to take the way out. It's like you're in a burning building. Fireman comes in and says, follow me. I'm going to show you how to get out of here. Nah, man, I ain't following you. You know, I'm doing this. I ain't got time to run from this fire. I got, I got other things to do. Well, if you burn up in a house, <laughs> whose fault is that? You had a way out, didn't take it. Now you got to live with the consequences, right? Ship is sinking. It's going down. And the captain says, hey, get in the lifeboat. Let's go. Nah, man, the band is playing nearer, my God, to the, I'm, I'm not leaving. All right, well, then stay. And when their body floats on top of the water, they'll come, you know, they may, they may recover if the sharks don't eat you. So these things are by choice. People just make the choice. I'm not doing it. Okay, well, then you live with the consequences of your decision. So, but because of false teaching, Many people are getting harmed by because of false teaching, which God will judge those false teachers and false apostles and false prophets. God's going to judge every last one of them for misleading people, making them believe, think God was going to do something that he never said he was going to do. And after they tell you to do it, they leave town with your money that you gave them in an offering, and your life either gets worse or doesn't get any better. In some cases, people die because of their bad advice. And then they try to put the blame on you and said you didn't have any faith, which is nonsense. And lastly for this segment, I want to comment on churches using gimmicks to entice people. Like, I, 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 I know, I've done it myself, and I still do it to some extent, to get people to come to church. I mean, one time we were, they had a parade in town, I believe it was a, I don't know, I think it was a 4th of July parade. And our church had a float in that parade. And what I did was I, I got some tracks and I, I, put, I got some uh, Ziploc bags, stuffed them with candy, and then put those chick tracks in them, like kind of ones that are like comic books. And uh, those comic book tracks, I stuck them in there, Ziplocked them. And as we were going down the road, I, uh, the, sitting on the back of the truck with our float, I was tossing these things off into the audience to the kids uh, to bring them the gospel. So I've done the whole gimmick thing. I, I, I get it. Um, 
But some of these gimmicks, sometimes you, they go too far or we depend on them. You know, I hear Christians talking about ways, they can, some things they can do to reach out to the sinner, which I guess you want to introduce yourself to the, to the community. Some churches have opened up their doors to be um, places where they can have meetings pertaining to, on politics. That happens sometimes. Okay, well and good. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, that way it makes, trying to make their church the hub or the center of activity for the community. So the community, if nothing else, knows you're there. And they know what the church stands for and what it's about. Some churches feed, have feeding programs. They feed people in the community that reach out to the homeless. And by the way, I think we should do all of these things. I'm 100% on board with all this stuff. But that's just a means to an end. In other words, so it's a means to reach out to the individual. But don't think that the gimmicks are going to keep them there or get them saved. You may find yourself being in a community for years and, you know, you could say, well, listen, we felt we, we have fed 10,000 people in five years or however long it was. And of that 10,000, maybe two or three have actually come to Christ. Well... We have to continue doing that because God has called the church to do that. But uh, So that's what I'm saying about gimmicks. Gimmicks don't necessarily mean people are going to get saved. It's just a, a tool, a means to an end. And to reach out to those individuals. And we'll say a little bit more about that later. But right now what I want to get to, uh, the main portion of this, is counterfeit conversion false conversions or when Jesus gives the parable of the sower and the soils remember I told you sowing and sower and sowing in the Bible refers to and harvesting has nothing to do with money when Christ gives the parables of sower and sowing it's always in reference to the saving of souls. But the false teachers have convinced you it's about money. Every time you turn on the TV, uh, sow a harvest, reap a harvest. Your harvest time has come. You're going to reap a harvest. That's not what Jesus was talking about. So that's a perversion of what, of what Jesus was saying. Now let's listen to the parable of the sower and the soils. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. 
but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. He put another parable before them, saying, Amen. That's the parable of the sower and the soils. Very important to know these things. Now, in the parable of the sower and the soils, you have a sower. The sower is an evangelist or the preacher or the prophet or whoever, the missionary, or just the, the believer that's just sharing his faith. The seed is the word of God. That's the Bible, the preached word of God. The soil is the human heart. And then some of the negatives are the birds, which are demons of the devil. They come and snatch the word away. The thorns of the weed are the cares of life and the deceitfulness of riches. And the sun represents persecution. And you can also find these parables in other parts of the scripture as well. If we cross-reference it. But let me say this. The soil represents the human heart. So the preacher goes out to preach it. And by the way, he gives four different scenarios in which the word of God is preached with four with three of them resulting in the same thing. But the process of how they get there is different. But the result is the same. The, the first three don't stick. They go back out and they don't stay in. The last one that stays. Now, is Jesus telling us that one-third of all the people, one-fourth of all the people who get saved, who come to the altar are, are uh, so I say four people come to the altar of that four, one, just take one, that's actually converted? Um, I don't know. I don't know. But all I know is he's giving four different scenarios and four different responses um, to the preached word. But what this tells me is that preaching the word of God does not guarantee a whole lot of salvation. Now, I know people say, oh, man, we went to street meeting and we preached the word and we preached the gospel to people and we didn't get that response that we wanted. We're going to talk a little bit more about why that is and how to how to uh, prep the soil. Because like a farmer, a farmer doesn't just sow seed. He has to prepare the soil. And so the soil has to be prepped. But we'll talk a little bit about that later. Right now, I just want to talk about Paul's conversions. You know, the altar call is a man-made invention. And there are some churches, they, ha they almost have a conniption if you don't give an altar call. There was no altar call until the 1800s under Charles Grandison Finney. It was called the Mourner's Bench of the Anxious Seat. Now, it's a good idea. Hear what I'm saying? It's a good idea. And after the service, people could come up to the front, and they sat down, and you would have your counselors and your altar workers talk to them to see where they were at before you 
but they wouldn't just assume salvation. But as mass evangelism came in, say, like around the time of Billy Sunday, Amy Simple, McPherson, and others, when they had the law, started packing out the large auditoriums, and they moved away from the tents to auditoriums, well, if you've got, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 people at the altar, well, who has time to work with each individual one? You don't have enough altar workers to, to cover that. And so they just started doing the blanket prayer thing. So I understand why they do that. It's just a time saver. And then in the book of Acts, when people got saved, you didn't see them. There was no all. There's no record anyway. I'm not saying there wasn't there. There's no record of altar workers or whatever. But it, it does say a lot of people got saved. And we're going to get back to that because I'm going to tell you why that was different from what we're doing now with our auditoriums. Why that 5,000 stuck and the, the 5,000 we have don't stick. I think it was... Uh, Billy Graham Crusades, under Billy Graham, who was our best modern-time evangelist. Uh, I think they said you, 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 if you, if uh, only a certain percentage, I think it was like 20%. So if 100 people went to the altar, then you can just take 20 people, and that's the people who most likely actually got saved. Some actually put it at 15%. So don't feel bad. Uh, even our best evangelist, Billy Graham, didn't seem to be that effective um, as, as an evangelist. Now, you see a lot of people come to the altar. He awakened a lot of people, and I'm sure a lot of those people that, who weren't in that 15% probably got saved later on because it's a start, right? People are at the altar, then they're awakened, and... You know, it may take another year or two, but they eventually they'll come around. But that that's a whole other podcast when we start talking about the, the means by which God saves people. And we need to get a little bit better understanding of that. So the first type of soil is hard ground. The ground is hard. You preach and, it, and the seed doesn't penetrate into the ground. Well, the seed can't germinate unless it gets buried into the ground. So, you know, it can't just drop on the surface. And anybody knows about growing grass and seeds and different things like that. Certain seeds you put on the ground, if you don't bury it and put it in deep, the birds will come and take it away. They're like, oh, this is nice. Thank you so much for this, for this free food. Hooray. Thanks for feeding us. And so the Bible talks about the heart. The sinner has a heart of stone. So you're trying to preach, but you're hitting a heart of stone and the seed isn't penetrating. The word of God is not penetrating because he has a hardened heart. And I'd like to take it a step further. It says that it, it, was, it, was, it, was, on a, it was on a road, a path that was worn. That could be religious people. People who have grown up in church their entire life have heard this thing over and over and over again. But their heart is just hard to the word of God. It's a path. That means it's been walked over before, it's been, it's been plowed before, it's been sown in before, it's been sown in before, it's been sown in, but the ground has just gotten hard and it's just not receiving the word of God anymore. That could be religious people. And before it can take root, before the person can begin to, the seed can germinate, the person begin, the enemy comes and snatches it away quick. See, you can be religious, do all the religious things, go to church, pay your tithes, um, teach Sunday school, preach the word. Good example of that was John Wesley. He was a missionary to Georgia. Got up four o'clock every morning to pray. Read the Bible, grew up in church his entire life. Because his father was a pastor. Knew Latin, Greek, Hebrew. Spoke several languages. And was very devout and very disciplined in his Christian life. But one day, he's leaving Georgia. He's on a boat going back to England. They run into a storm. And he thinks he's about to die. We're not going to make it. 
He looks over and sees some Moravian missionaries who were real Christians. And they're having so much peace. And he questions them about their singing. They said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we, if the boat goes under, we're going to be with Jesus. So not a problem. Don't you have that same peace, brother? And he realized he didn't. He was terrified. He said, why did he feel so calm in the face of a certain death? And he remembered something his father told him about having the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, which he never had. And they said they had the inner witness. And he realized he wasn't saved. It wasn't until he got back to England and he was in, his, in the church and he said his heart was strangely warm. He speaks of his conversion experience. But here's a man who was, who was a missionary doing all kinds of religious stuff and still not saved. That's that hard ground. The seed, the seed is there, but it can't take root. But it's, it's a path. It's, it's, it's religious. It's, it's been doing religious things forever and just continues to do religious things. There are many people who think that by being religious, they're going to get into the kingdom. And I'll tell you why. If you're living, if, you, if, you're, if you're doing religious things, because, and you're saying to yourself, these religious things will get me into the kingdom. I have to live this way. I have to live right or I won't get into the kingdom. I have to do these things to stay saved. Then if I were you, I would be very, become very suspicious of where my salvation is at. Because justification and salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what salvation is. I couldn't save myself. Christ saved me. I cannot keep myself saved. Christ is keeping me saved. Now, do I do good works? Yes, but those good works are for my neighbor and to glorify God. None of the good works that I do has anything to do with my salvation. Other than saving faith will produce good works. We can make a case for that. If I have genuine faith and I'm generally saved, It'll produce those good works. But those works have no merit towards your salvation. Why? Because you're already saved. It has no merit keeping you saved because that's not how you stay saved. You stay saved because you can, your faith is in Christ for your salvation. That's it. You don't put your confidence in anything else. But if you're putting any confidence in any work or any type of behavior for your salvation, you need to take another good hard look. I'm not saying you're not saved. Maybe you're just misunderstanding what salvation is about. But generally people who are working to keep themselves saved, who are trying to keep themselves right with God, and they're doing it as, as something that's going to keep them saved or get them saved, apart from just justification by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, for their salvation. They're trusting in any type of good work, whether it's feeding people, street ministry, doing whatever, then you need to take a good hard look at your salvation. Because, by the way, none of those things are going to get you in. And I know what you're thinking. Jesus said, you know, depart from me for I never knew you. And he talks about, he, you know, you didn't, you didn't do any good works. You didn't do the will of God. Remember what I just said. The evidence of salvation is that you'll do good works. If you have faith in Christ alone, if you have confidence in him alone for your salvation, you will do good works. That's what Christ is referring there to. The sinner can't see your faith, but they can see your good works. That's what that's about. But, there, but it is possible to do good works and depending on those works for your salvation. That's where you get into trouble. You cannot depend on that for your salvation. I've done feeding programs. I've done outreach I've done all the religious things, but I have zero confidence in any of that for my salvation. I have zero confidence in that for keeping me saved. My faith is in Christ and Christ alone. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall bleed. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Christ has died. And Christ has died for me. 
Nothing else is going to get you in. Nothing else is going to keep you saved. In Second Peter, he talks about those who are kept by the power of God. That's how I stay saved. The second type of soil. The second type of soil where his seed was sown. It fell into thorny bushes. That's the heart that's cluttered with the cares of this life and, or the focus on wealth and riches. And the prosperity gospel feeds this garbage. It just feeds it. God wants you rich. You're supposed to have money. I got me a jet plane. Look what I got. I'm rich. You poor. You know. And so people buy into that. But the Bible talks about the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this life, being caught up. In Philippians, it says this, and also in Colossians, it says, set not your affection on things above, on things below, but on things above. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But rather lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust does not break into and thieves cannot get into steel and there's no corruption up there in heaven. I had a college professor who used to tell us all the time. He said, you know, there's two places you need to go. Everybody needs to take a field trip to the junkyard. Just go to any, any dump because everything in your house, everything you own, if not now, when you die, Eventually, even the pictures you got up there hanging up on the wall. Unless your family decides to keep it for sentimental values. And that might only last one or two generations tops. Because the rest of the generations are going to be so detached from you, they're not going to really care. But everything in your house, everything, sooner or later, by and by, after a while, is going to go to the city dump. That's where it's going to go, in the, in the dump heap, in the garbage. Everything. The second place you need to take a trip to is the graveyard. Because it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. The rate of death is one per person, Hank Hanegraaff says. We're all gonna make it. Everybody's going there. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. And so... The cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. The word of God doesn't germinate and grow in that person to bring salvation. Why? Because the cares of this life, it just, it's just too caught up with, with the drama that's going on in the home. Some people got drama, man. Got a lot of drama in their life. And that drama can drown out the word of God. It can be so overwhelming. It seems like, can God even fix this mess? I'm overwhelmed. That's the cares of this life. Paying bills. I got a sick aunt, sick grandmother, sick parents, sick child. And all that stuff comes to, comes to full bear upon an individual. To where the word, they're hearing the preacher, but it's just not making any sense to them because, man, I got to pay these bills. I got to go to work. I, I can't, I can't, I can't. I can't get this. This isn't making any sense to me. I don't see the connection between this and my, my sick child and other things that are going on. And so the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. Oh, there's this pursuit of, of wealth. And that's why the people create the prosperity gospel and make it seem like, you know, pursuing wealth is compatible with the gospel. And it isn't. But it has nothing to do with it. Then the other type of soil is where it falls into the soil. And, but the soil is, is just soft enough so it does take root a little bit, but the roots don't go down deep enough into the ground. So the root, when, the, when, the, when the ground is hard, the roots will go down a little bit. And then instead of going down into the soil because the, it's, it's, it's stony ground, it's rocky ground, it can't go through the stone. So then it pushes outward. It goes to the left or to the right instead of down. And it stays close to the surface and becomes shallow. So when the sun beats down on that soil, 
because the roots aren't down to where it's drawing waters from the well of salvation, that sun kills the root and the plant just dies. Now, the sun is designed to make plants grow. The sun in this parable represents persecution. And God can use persecution, can redeem that persecution to make the true believer grow and turn pain into power. But the roots aren't down deep enough. It's not down in God. So when, the, when persecution comes and they have to make a stand for Christ and they have to live the way God has called us to live, they can't take it. So, you know, the guy's talking to the girl, oh, you're a Christian girl, man. You know, I know all that, but, you know, I want to get with you right now. I'm in love with you, blah, blah, blah. Let's go to bed. You know, and because she has no root in herself, she just caves in. She can't take the pressure. Or vice versa, the guy, the girl wants to go to bed with him and he caves in because he has no root in himself. Or, the you know, come let's go get high. Let's go do this. Let's, you know, whatever whatever they're calling you to do that's sinful. And because you have no root in yourself, you can't resist. It's better to just join them than, than resist them. And so you join in the sin because there's no root. Your roots don't go down deep in God. They're shallow. When I see people running from church to church, that means they're not putting their roots down. Find a, God, a godly church and put your roots down there. It's never going to be perfect. Stop it. You're not going to find the perfect church. I don't care where you go. Somebody's going to annoy you. The pastor's going to say something eventually you don't like. People are going to offend you. I don't care where you go. You can't get two people in a room to agree on anything. What makes you think you can go to a church with 40, 50 people, and now all of a sudden everything is lovely and honky-dory? That's never going to happen. So put that out of your head. But go to that church that's preaching the Word of God and put your roots down deep in God. Get them down deep and then drink deep from the wells of salvation. The water of the wells of salvation. And as you get them down deep, then you'll have strength to resist temptation. You'll have strength to resist persecution and whatever comes at you. So when the storm blows, you know, they, they talk about the right in Psalms 92, the righteous will flourish like the palm tree, should grow like the cedars of Lebanon. And you see when the wind comes, the palm tree may bend, but it doesn't break. It just comes right back up the way it was after the winds blow through it. Oh, it's, 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 it, we're in the desert, but you see some plants survive in the desert. They even seem to thrive. How is this even possible? Because the, the, the roots are down deep. Water's in the ground, and the roots find water down below. And that's where you got to go. You got you to gotta make that connection in the, where the Holy Spirit dwells within you and put your roots down deep in there. And draw sustenance, strength, and power from the Holy Spirit. And of course, the last type of soil is the good soil. And now we're going to talk a little bit about what makes the good soil the good soil. I believe in Hosea it says, Break up your fallow ground and sow to yourselves in and sow to yourselves in righteousness. And it talks about when the when until God will come and rain righteousness upon you. In evangelism, saints, you got to prep the soil. The human heart, just like the soil, has to be plowed and it has to be prepped to receive the word of God. If you don't prep the soil, if the soil's not properly prepared, that person, I don't care how hard you preach, you can preach and sweat till the chickens come home, you're not going to get very far with them. Well, when you're doing a street evangelism or you're on a street meeting or you're witnessing, you don't know the condition of the person. You don't know where the person's at, do you? And you have several people. Some people are, will come there, the hearts are hard. It's, it, other people got thorny hearts. Other people have uh, rocky hearts. Uh, there's different types. And those have to be prepped. And then there's some good soil that comes along. We say, well, Brother Ryan, how can I do both? I gotta, I'm preaching. I got to reach the one with the good soil. I can't, do I have time to stop and prep the soil? Well, actually, you don't. And that's going to be on our next podcast. We're going to talk about the person and work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. 
what is God's job and what is our job? Because uh, I used to feel a lot of guilt, man. I'd be preaching my head off, and I'm like, wow, I don't see nobody in the city. And I thought it was me, but it's not me, and it's not you. It has nothing to do with us. Oh, he's highly anointed. That's something else we're going to talk about, the anointing. That's another word that gets overused and overdone, and we don't really quite understand what that means. But anyway, I, let me let me go back here. Uh, so we will talk about the person and work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. It, it, it is solely the work of God. It's a good podcast by John MacArthur. You might want to look it up. Um, a theology of Sleep. That's one of the best ones I've ever, I've ever heard. In fact, he uses one of these, these parables that Jesus gives. Because in the 13th chapter, he, and he gives a couple more parables as well. Uh, all in connection with evangelism. And we're going to take a look at those. Um, because what Jesus is doing, he's giving us clues. He's telling us how to do evangelism. But we have to understand who does what in, in, in salvation. But if the soil isn't prepped, uh, let me just give you another clue. One of the ways that God has given us to prep the soil is apologetics. Is apologetics. It can help to prep the soil. Apologetics, let me say this. There is no silver bullet. There's no argument that you're going to give that's just so overwhelming that the sinner's like, oh, okay, I got it. I have no choice but to believe. But what that does is it preps the soil. It gets the person ready for the work of God. And the Holy Spirit, and again, but it, even with that, it's still the Holy Spirit. Yes, God is using you. You're the one doing the talking and the defense of the faith. But it's ultimately everything has to be done in the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. You take the Holy Ghost out of the equation, nothing will get accomplished. I promise you. And if you get a convert, it'll be a fleshly con conversion and that person will not stick. How many people have walked down the aisle and signed a card thinking they were saved? That's what, that's what gets me because when people keep telling me they got re-saved and saved over again, nine times out of ten, I can make a good case that they were never saved in the first place. Nine times out of ten. People who get saved tend to stay saved. And that's biblical. There's no resaving again. What do you mean you're getting resaved? You're in or you're out. Which is it now? Hard choices and hard decisions have to be made here. And so that's what we want to know. So if we're going to reach this culture, part of it is getting the message right and understanding who does what in salvation how God works. We don't understand the mechanics as to how God saves people. I hear people say, I got to preach because I want to I save people. I have never, Don Reimer has never saved anyone, and neither have you. I cannot save. I don't care how hard I preach, how I can fall down the ground, I can hoop, I can do all of that. I can be very entertaining. But at the end of the day, I have not cannot save anyone. I have preached and I have seen God save people. I have laid hands on people and I have seen God heal them. You get that? Not me. God healed them. If I pray for you and your prayer is answered or the, the prayer is answered, it's because God answered the prayer. It had little or nothing to do with me. A monkey could have got up here and said, ooh, ee, ee, ah, 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 ooh. And God could have worked. It doesn't matter. Don't get hung up on the personality. In conclusion, there's nothing wrong with the sower. That's the evangelist. There's nothing wrong with the seed, the Word of God. Nothing wrong with the Word of God. What made the difference in results was the condition of the soil. And the soil represents the human heart. The key 
to evangelism and reaching the lost is discerning the condition of the human heart and understanding how to deal with it properly so that you can break up the fallow ground, you can plow that ground and prep the heart to receive the word of God. But that's the key. It's the condition of the human heart. Something has to change there. The hard ground has to be plowed so that the seed can get into it. The rocky ground, the rocks have to be removed from the stuff on that soil. You got to cut down those weeds and thorns so the word of God can go down deep and grow. So when persecution comes or the cares of life, it won't affect them. That's how you get it to become good soil. It has to be prepped. That's one of the keys to reaching the loss. And that's timeless in any generation. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. But few people have the skill set and the discernment to know how this is actually done, which we'll talk about in the next podcast. God bless you. And thanks for listening. My prayer is that I've said something that will help someone to grow and give us a little bit of hope. Because I know right now it seems hopeless. But never lose hope. We don't faint. We're steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. God bless you and thanks for listening.